When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let me paint you a picture. A single jack pine stands silhouetted against a sunset backdrop. The tree itself is a dark shape, almost ominous. The branches bowed but tinged with red. If you get up close, you can see the strokes that went into drawing this tree, but not too close, because there you'll lose the magic of what the artist was trying to convey. The paint strokes are thick and confident. They swirl and dance across the canvas. The background depicts a liquid sunset over a slate gray lake. Although the weather had been stormy the day the artist painted the picture, he chose instead to depict a clear, twilight sky. The key to magic is misdirection. Look over here while I pull this rabbit out of a hat. The entire painting is a sort of magic trick in and of itself. For even though it's that stark graphic jack pine that fills the foreground of the canvas, and even gives the painting its name, that's not the focal point. No, the artist slash magician manages to draw your attention away from that aforementioned pine tree and directs your eye toward the distant shore, at an almost circular shape formed in a break between the curving branches. And there you see a few strokes of glistening white patch of snow in the distance. Now let me paint you another picture. A canoe overturned in a lake, the water still and calm, shimmering with splashes of gold in the late afternoon sun. But where is the canoe's owner, and why is the boat overturned? It's a mystery. But there beneath the water's surface lies the answer. A man's body lies face down, his wristwatch is stopped at 12.14. A purplish four-inch bruise spreads along his right temple. There's a length of fishing line wrapped around one of his legs, or maybe it's both of his legs. Here the picture isn't quite so clear. The first image I described is a real painting on real canvas. It's titled The Jack Pine. You can go see it yourself at the National Gallery of Canada. Or perhaps you've already seen it. It is, after all, almost certainly the most famous painting in Canadian history. It's appeared on postage stamps, t-shirts, posters, you name it. The second picture I described is a real scene that really occurred. It depicts the artist behind the jack pine, a man named Tom Thompson, who was, without a doubt, the most famous artist in Canada. He died on July 18, 1917, in a way that is both tragic and yet somehow fits into the life of a man whose past was such a conundrum. During his short career, Thompson produced roughly 400 oil sketches on wood panels, and these are the works that really made him famous. Throughout his career, he only completed about 50 larger works on canvas, including the Jack Pine. He only began painting during the last few years of his life, and although his name is renowned across Canada today, 
and his sketches and paintings fetch tens of thousands of dollars on up throughout the art market. He hardly sold any of his work during his short life. In fact, he once wrote to a friend shortly before his death how happy he'd be if he could get someone to pony up 10 or $15 for one of his sketches. Thompson was known as a seasoned woodsman, and it's his love for the Canadian wilderness that inspired him to paint. Around 1908, he started work at Grip, a Toronto graphic design firm. It was there he met and befriended a well-known collection of other celebrated artists that came to be known as the Group of Seven. These artists encouraged Thompson to hone his skills by painting the outdoors. In a short time, Thompson developed his signature impressionistic style that was not too dissimilar from other well-known artists like Vincent van Gogh. Thompson's paintings, like van Gogh's, are not realistic. They showcase his skills with oil paints and a brush as much as they do his graphic design sensibilities. The paint strokes are quick but deliberate. The pigment lies thick on the canvas and breaks down nature into simple but easily recognizable forms. But, much like Van Gogh, although Thompson's name is celebrated today, during his life Thompson always struggled financially and often felt depressed about his lack of commercial success. On the morning of July 8, 1917, Thompson went out on a canoeing trip on Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park, one of his favorite locations in all of Canada. His overturned canoe was found later that day, and his dead body was located eight days later in a scene much as I previously described. Since then, there has been constant speculation about the circumstances behind just how Tom Thompson died. Both the coroner and the doctor who initially inspected the body came to the conclusion that Thompson's death was an accidental drowning. But other theories have persisted, largely based on rumor and conjecture. Although the coroner determined the bruise on Thompson's temple was a result of his head striking a rock or other hard surface after he fell into the water, there are some people who refuse to believe a seasoned outdoorsman like Thompson could have possibly died from a simple accident, and rather must have been murdered, or at the very least committed suicide. Unsubstantiated rumors have circled the case ever since involving angry, jealous lovers who murdered him in a rage or even Thompson himself turning suicidal when he learned a girlfriend had become pregnant with his child. In 1956, a group of four men got drunk one evening and decided it would be a good idea to do some digging at Canoe Lake Cemetery. There, they dug up a skeleton with a hole in the left temple of the skull. The newspapers at the time had a field day printing stories claiming that this was the real skeleton of Tom Thompson, and that it proved without a shadow of a doubt the man had been murdered. But the Ontario government did their own forensic analysis of the skeleton, and determined it was actually the remains of a young Aboriginal man, and the hole in the skull was a result of trepanation, an ancient medical procedure to relieve pressure on the brain. But even after that, there remained many people who weren't convinced. In 2009, newspaper columnist Roy McGregor described his own examination of records from 1956 that he said clearly pointed to the body being that of Tom Thompson. In 2016, author Gregory Clages published a book titled The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, in which he attempted to lay to rest many of the myths surrounding the death of the man, including that of the mysterious skeleton found in 1956. 
Plage's book clearly lays out the evidence that the skeleton really was that of an Aboriginal man, just as the Canadian government claimed. Although some people point to the fishing line wrapped around Thompson's legs as yet another clue to his murder. Plages points out that the line, if it was even there at all, was probably wrapped around only one of his legs since it was a commonly used method at the time to relieve joint pain. In the end, Plages comes to agree with the official story that the death of Tom Thompson was nothing more than a simple accident. And yet, despite considerable evidence to the contrary, there are those today who insist that there really was something darker and more mysterious about the death of Canada's greatest artist. I mentioned earlier some of the similarities between Thompson's work and that of Vincent van Gogh. Well, there are some other things the two artists had in common as well. Both men struggled financially throughout their lives and would not be truly celebrated in the art community until after their deaths. And according to some historians who have investigated the death of Vincent van Gogh, evidence exists that may prove his death did not occur the way the history books say it did. Although the common belief today is that Vincent van Gogh took his own life by shooting himself, there are those who believe one of the greatest artists who ever lived may have been murdered. I'm Nate Hale, currently on display in the Museum of Paranoid Arts, and this is The Conspirators. Before I get too deep into this mystery, let's get one thing out of the way. There are probably some art historians out there who are cringing at the way I'm pronouncing Van Gogh's name. The actual Dutch pronunciation is much closer to saying Van Goshk, but even then I'm pretty sure my clumsy American tongue isn't getting it right. So for simplicity's sake, I'm going to continue using the Americanized pronunciation of Van Gogh throughout. So to the art historians of the world and any of my Dutch listeners, I offer my humble apologies. Much like Tom Thompson, Vincent van Gogh's artistic career was relatively short throughout his life. In just over 10 years, he created an astonishing 2,100 artworks, including 860 oil paintings. And most of those were done in just the last two years of his life. He was born into an upper-middle-class family in Zundert, Netherlands, on March 30, 1853. His father was a country minister and his mother was an artist who passed on her love of nature, drawing, and painting to her own children. Vincent was born exactly one year after his parents' first son, whom they also named Vincent, was stillborn. This made Vincent the eldest of six living children in the Van Gogh family. He had three younger sisters and two brothers, one of whom, Theo, would remain Vincent's closest friend throughout his life, and who would go on to support him financially as an art dealer as well. As a young man, Vincent Van Gogh worked as an art dealer himself, and in June of 1873, he got a job in London's Groupel Gallery. There, he fell madly in love with both English culture and his landlady's daughter. But when the young girl rejected Van Gogh's marriage proposal, he had what was thought to be the first of many mental breakdowns throughout his life. At the time, Vincent threw away all his books except for the Bible and decided to devote his life to God. People took notice of how much his temperament changed around then as well. He became moody and combative with customers who came into the gallery, snapping at them not to bother buying all the worthless art. As you can probably imagine, for that he was fired. 
In many ways, Van Gogh seemed intent on sabotaging his own future. He went on to study at a Methodist school where he hoped to one day become a minister. But when it came time to take the entrance exam at the School of Theology in Amsterdam, Van Gogh refused to take the Latin exams, arguing that it was a dead language for poor people. He was subsequently denied entrance. He spent the next few years living a more or less nomadic existence, drifting aimlessly as he tried to find his purpose. During this time, his parents threatened to cut him off financially if he didn't settle down and get a job. In the fall of 1880, Van Gogh moved to Brussels with the intention of becoming an artist. Although he had no formal art training, his little brother Theo offered to support him financially. In 1885, Van Gogh completed what is often considered to be his first masterpiece, The Potato Eaters. But Theo, who was living in Paris at the time, believed the dark colors and moody style would not be well received in the French capital, where Impressionism had become the latest trend. In 1886, Vincent showed up unannounced on his brother's doorstep and told him he had decided to move to Paris. It was in the City of Lights that Vincent van Gogh was first exposed to Impressionistic art. He began studying the works of such luminaries as Henri de Toulouse, Lautrec, Camille Pissarro, and Paul Gauguin, an artist whom he befriended and briefly shared a studio with. But Vincent remained outspoken and opinionated, and he often got into loud arguments with Gauguin and other contemporary painters about Parisian culture, politics, and where he saw the art scene going. By the year 1888, Van Gogh had grown tired of all the bickering and infighting between artists, so he boarded a train for the south of France where he ended up in the village of Arles. By then, Van Gogh had begun studying Eastern philosophy as well as Japanese art. In fact, Toulouse-Lautrec had inspired Vincent to leave Paris by telling him that the light in Arles was just like the light in Japan. Now, if I were to ask you to name one thing you know about Van Gogh, you might mention a couple of his most famous paintings, maybe Starry Night or The Sunflowers. But I'm willing to bet that the first thing that jumped into your mind was, most likely, the ear. In December of 1888, Vincent van Gogh arrived in the red light district in the north of Arles, where he handed a grisly package to a startled young woman in one of the village's brothels. It contained a substantial portion of van Gogh's left ear, with blood pouring from his hand, he asked the young woman named Rachel to take care of this bloody gift for him. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The story of Van Gogh cutting off his ear is one of the most famous legends in all of art history. But his reasoning behind his self-mutilation, as well as just how far he went with it, are nearly steeped in as much mystery as the circumstances surrounding his death would become. The morning after Vincent cut off his ear, the police found him and took him to the hospital. Theo arrived on Christmas Day to see his brother weak from blood loss and suffering violent seizures. The doctors assured Theo that Vincent would live and that he would be well taken care of. But for the remainder of his life, Vincent van Gogh would continue to exhibit symptoms of clinical depression and mental illness. One story goes that shortly prior to cutting off his ear, Vincent attended his first bullfight, 
an event some historians have suggested may have inspired him to mutilate himself. But this is a rumor that can be easily dispelled, though. It is true that traditionally, at the end of a Spanish bullfight, the bullfighter will cut off the bull's ear and toss it into the crowd to one lucky spectator. But this was not a practice that had been adopted yet in Arles' bullfighting ring at the time that Van Gogh would have attended. Another disputed legend regarding the ear cutting was the occupation of the woman Van Gogh gave his ear to. In most biographies of the artist, you'll see the woman, Rachel, described as a prostitute. Now, it is true the young woman worked in a brothel, but a recent BBC documentary suggested she may not have been a sex worker at all. In the documentary, art historian Bernadette Murphy was able to track down employment records as well as some of Rachel's ancestors, who swore the woman was not a prostitute at all, but rather a cleaning lady for the brothel. The other part of the story that the documentary managed to lay to rest was the question of just how much of Van Gogh's ear the artist actually cut off. Depending on the source you're looking at, some historians have claimed that Vincent only cut away a small portion of his earlobe and not the entire ear. But Bernadette Murphy was able to track down a medical diagram drawn by a doctor who actually examined Van Gogh, and the drawing clearly shows the artist cut off most of his ear. Following his release from the hospital, Van Gogh returned for a time to the legendary Yellow House in Arles, where he produced many of his most famous work. But after a few months, he was committed to the Saint-Paul-de-Mausoleum Asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, after the people of Arles signed a petition claiming he was dangerous. Now, of course, more than a century after his death, it's impossible to diagnose just what was wrong with Van Gogh. Theories have ranged from everything from bipolar disorder to temporal lobe epilepsy to untreated syphilis to schizophrenia. There's even one theory that's been put forth that the artist was suffering from severe lead poisoning from his habit of putting his brushes in his mouth, which were often coated with lead-based paints. The only thing we can say for certain about Van Gogh's mental state is that he remained deeply troubled throughout much of his life. Following his death, he would come to be thought of as the very epitome of the tortured artist. It's often said there is a fine line between madness and genius, and Vincent van Gogh is often used as the ultimate example of where the two lines cross. On January 31st, 1890, Theo van Gogh and his wife, Joanna, gave birth to a son and named him Vincent. It was around this time that Theo managed to sell van Gogh's painting, The Red Vineyards, for 400 francs. Many biographies claim this was the only painting he ever sold during his life, but even this has been disputed by some art historians as well. It was around this time that Dr. Paul Gachet, who lived in Auvergne, about 20 miles north of Paris, agreed to treat Vincent van Gogh. The artist moved to Auvergne and rented a room to be closer to Dr. Gachet. He was so grateful to the doctor that he went on to paint one of his most well-known portraits of the man. But by July of that year, van Gogh was dead. And although almost any biography you will read of Van Gogh will claim he committed suicide, a more recent theory has been put forth suggesting the man's death may actually have been murder. On the morning of July 29, 1890, Vincent Van Gogh left his room in Auvergne and headed for a wheat field outside town. He carried with him a canvas, an easel, and a satchel full of paints. He set up his kit in the middle of the field and rushed to capture the scene of the swirling wheat as a storm rapidly approached in the distance. His brush flew in a frenzy. Inspiration poured out of him like a maelstrom. But even as the artist got lost in the work, 
nature itself seemed to conspire against him. Crows darted about the field, seeming to taunt him. They dove at him, pecking at him, driving him to the brink of madness. It was all too much. The painting couldn't come fast enough. The crows were screaming at him. Couldn't take it anymore. In a moment of desperation, he reached into a pocket and took out a pistol. He then pointed the gun at his abdomen and pulled the trigger. This is the version of Van Gogh's final day that's cemented in many people's minds. And it's taken from the 1956 film biopic Lust for Life starring Kirk Douglas as Van Gogh. The film was based on a 1934 biography of the same name by Irving Stone. But according to a pair of Pulitzer Prize winning biographers Gregory White Smith and Stephen Nafa, it's all a load of bunk. Van Gogh arrived back at his rooming house around 9 p.m. clutching his stomach. Adeline Raveau, the innkeeper's 13-year-old daughter, would later recount what she saw that night. Van Gogh stumbled up to his room, refusing at first to tell anyone what had happened. Later, Adeline's father went up to check on him and found the artist curled up in bed. He told them that he had wounded himself with a revolver before passing out. When he awoke, he attempted to locate the revolver in order to finish the job but was unable to find it because it was too dark. Adeline then claimed her father sent Anton Hershig, another Dutch artist staying at the inn, to go fetch Dr. Gachet. Van Gogh clung to life for 29 agonizing hours, sometimes smoking, sometimes drifting in and out of consciousness. In the morning following the shooting, Adeline's father sent a telegram to Theo Van Gogh. Theo arrived by train that afternoon. He stood helplessly by as his beloved brother slipped into a coma and died at around 1 o'clock in the morning. Just six months after his brother's death, Theo van Gogh also died, this time of syphilis, after being committed to a Dutch asylum. Theo was originally buried in Utrecht, but in 1914 Theo's widow Joanna, who was also a dedicated supporter of Vincent's art, had Theo reburied in Auvergne next to his brother. According to Stephen Nifa and Gregory White Smith's 2011 biography, Van Gogh, The Life, the commonly told story about Van Gogh's suicide isn't what happened at all. For one thing, the authors point out, it's strange that Van Gogh never wrote a word during his final days about his desire to commit suicide. This was especially strange considering how often Vincent wrote to his brother Theo. They also point out that a partially unfinished letter to his brother was allegedly found inside Vincent's coat pocket, that sounded rather upbeat about the future, and didn't contain any hint of suicidal thoughts. Now, anyone who has any familiarity with suicide will point out that the lack of a suicide note is hardly evidence of foul play. In fact, a great many suicides occur each year with the victim leaving no hint as to his or her plans. But Nifa and Smith also point out that on the few occasions when Van Gogh did speak about suicide, he always talked about it as a mortal sin and something he would never consider. Another issue they point out is that Van Gogh placed a large order for new paints just a few days before the shooting. One other problem they point out is that no one could ever account for just where Van Gogh would have obtained a gun in the first place. Likewise, no one in Auvergne ever admitted to finding the gun afterwards, not in Vincent's room, nor in the wheat field where he allegedly shot himself. Also, no one was ever able to find Van Gogh's painting kit, even though he reportedly left the inn that morning loaded down with a canvas, easel, and a bag full of paints. There's also the question of the location of Van Gogh's wound. 
Van Gogh was shot in his belly, and some modern ballistics experts who have studied the case have pointed out just how awkward it would have been to hold a gun at that angle and shoot yourself. Not to mention shooting yourself in the stomach like that is hardly a certain way to die. At the very least, it would have been excruciatingly painful, and Nypha and Smith cast doubt on the idea that Van Gogh could have managed to travel the more than one mile long walk between the wheat field and his room in the inn. According to some later accounts, Van Gogh allegedly also made some curious statements to the local gendarme who questioned him. Some stories say that when one of the policemen asked Van Gogh if he intended to commit suicide, he gave the rather puzzling response, I think so. Other reports also claim that at one point Van Gogh grew argumentative and told police that his body was his own, and that they shouldn't attempt to blame anyone else for what had happened. Could this have been a tacit admission he was covering for someone? According to the story told by Adeline Raveau, Van Gogh made it very clear that he had shot himself. But Nypha and Smith point out that Raveau's story changed numerous times, and that she didn't actually go on the record with her memories until 1953 when she was in her 70s. Nypha and Smith believe Raveau's memories may have evolved over the years and were clouded by stories her father Gustav had repeated to her for more than 50 years. The two authors claimed that the story about Van Gogh shooting himself in the wheat field was actually something that was dreamed up by an artist named Emile Bernard, who told the story to an art critic later in life to impress him. The problem was Bernard wasn't even in Alvaire at the time of the shooting, and he may have gotten the story from another equally unreliable source, Paul Gachet's son. Even Theo Van Gogh's son Vincent, who grew up to found a museum dedicated to his famous uncle, dismissed Paul Gachet Jr. as being highly unreliable. But by that point in history, the story told by Paul Gachet Jr. and Adeline Raveau had taken on a life of its own and became the official story. The story was only further cemented in history once Lust for Life was published in 1934. According to Nypha and Smith, many historians just plain refuse to let go of the suicide story. While doing research for their own biography, the authors heard from one museum researcher who expressed his own suspicions about the suicide story, but was advised by his contemporaries to abandon that line of inquiry because it was, quote, too controversial. But if Van Gogh didn't shoot himself, then who did? Nypha and Smith have come up with an answer to that as well. During the 1930s, an eminent scholar named John Rewald traveled to Alvaire and interviewed locals about the painter's death before they all began to die off. He later confided to people he had heard a rumor that the painter had been accidentally shot by some young boys, who never came forward because they were afraid of being accused of murder. In 1890, a 16-year-old boy named René Secretan summered with his family in Alvaire. René was the son of a wealthy Paris pharmacist, and by most accounts, a bully. He found an easy target in the form of Vincent van Gogh. This strange Dutchman with his mangled ear and odd mannerisms. He openly mocked van Gogh and liked to play pranks on the artist, such as putting hot pepper on his brushes that he liked to put in his mouth. He would sometimes salt the artist's tea, and once even hit a snake inside his paint box. René used his more artistic brother Gaston, who had befriended Van Gogh, to get close to Vincent so that he could bully him mercilessly. Something interesting of note about René Secretan was that during the year before coming to Auvers, he had seen Wild Bill Cody's Traveling Wild West show. 
After that, Renee began parading around town in a souvenir cowboy costume complete with a fringed buckskin, cowboy hat, and chaps. Of particular note is that he also liked to accessorize his costume with an old 38 caliber pistol that had its own history of misfiring. But curiously, immediately after Van Gogh's death, Renee's family abruptly left Auvers in the middle of the season without giving any explanation why. Following Lust for Life's release in 1956, Secretan was interviewed, telling reporters how outraged he was by the romantic and cleaned-up portrayal of the artist the film depicted. Kirk Douglas's portrayal was nothing like the shabby hobo he remembered. By then, Secretan had become a successful businessman and banker. Although he denied having anything to do with Van Gogh's death, he did coyly admit to playing some harmless pranks on the man. Some reports even claim René did admit to being the one who gave Van Gogh the gun. But whether he did or not, one thing is known for certain. After leaving Alvaire that summer, Secretan never wore the cowboy outfit or carried that gun again. To quote Nypha in Smith's biography, René had a history of teasing Vincent in a way intended to provoke him to anger. Vincent had a history of violent outbursts, especially when under the influence of alcohol. Once the gun in Renee's rucksack was produced, anything could have happened, intentional or accidental, between a reckless teenager with fantasies about the Wild West, an inebriated artist who knew nothing about guns, and an antiquated pistol with a tendency to malfunction. After Van Gogh's death, no one in Auvers wanted to talk about what happened that day. Well, almost no one. There was one account by a woman from a distinguished Alvaire family who later claimed to have seen Van Gogh far away from the wheat field at the time the shot was allegedly fired. She claimed to have seen the painter much closer to town, which would make sense from a purely logistical standpoint, as to how he managed to stumble back to the inn with a bullet in his belly. According to the woman's story, she actually witnessed Van Gogh standing on the road that led to the Secretan family villa. Unfortunately, we may never know for certain what really happened to Vincent Van Gogh. But following Van Gogh's death, the local gendarme reportedly went through town and tracked down each and every pistol known to be there. The only one they were unable to locate was the 38 caliber pistol owned by Rene Secretan's family. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to also thank my friend Rob Christofferson for suggesting I look into the story of Tom Thompson. Rob hosts the excellent podcast, Our Strange Skies, in which he talks about the history and mystery of UFOs. I highly recommend you check it out. I wanted to remind everyone that if you're interested in helping support my show, I currently have a Patreon account. Patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're looking for other ways to help support the show, one great way you can do so is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your reviews helps boost us on Apple's charts. If you're not on Apple, you can still find us on Stitcher, Google Play, or many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Feel free to drop us a line by email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com or by sending us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page. Thanks again for joining us on our little historical journey, and I hope you'll be back next time.